This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. You are listening to the teaching ministry of our church. Thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're going to go back to verse 24, which we covered a little bit last week, but we're going to read through Acts chapter 13, verse 3. This is a familiar passage, as I've referenced it already in this series, but as we move our way through the book of Acts, we come back to this, and there's much here for us to to think of this morning. In Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 24, it says, But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, I realize after being here serving at First Baptist for the the many years that I've been here, there are only so many stories I can tell, and you've heard them all. So I'm going to tell the same one again. Many of you know that I'm a sports fan. I love team sports. I've been a sports fan for almost my entire life. Uh, I even attempted to play some sports at times, but, you know, I became, I found it's a lot easier just to be a fan. Uh, It doesn't hurt as much the next day, and you're always right, because you would have done it differently than the team you're watching. But uh, being a sports fan and determining which team I was a fan of had a lot to do with where we lived at certain times, and, and really a lot to do with family as well. So I remember when we, my dad was in the Air Force, we were transferred to Dayton, Ohio. He was at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And I was in elementary school, I was uh, fifth grade, and we joined a little church there, Maple Heights Baptist Church there in Fairborn. And in that church, it wasn't a large church, but there were some families there that had children about my age, and one family had some boys my age, and this family was a good family to know because they also had season tickets to the Cincinnati Reds games. And so they invited me to go to the game with them one, one day, and and I remember that day, it was, the fir- it was in 1979, I believe it was the first time I'd ever been to a Major League Baseball game. And I'd played a Little League ball, but it's different going to a field that's a lot bigger than, uh, than the Little League field. And so I remember walking into Riverfront Stadium through that, uh, that opening there and just seeing, and at that time, I think mean, it's the most beautiful sight ever, and I'm looking back going, that was really an ugly stadium, and it had Astro, it didn't look that nice, but... It was the first game I'd ever been to, and from that moment on, I became a Cincinnati Reds fan and have been all these years, and so uh, pray for me. Um, We had one good year in 90, but other than that, uh, then we moved from Dayton, Ohio to Fort Worth, Texas, and Fort Worth, Texas is near Arlington, Texas, and the Texas Rangers are there, and and it was pretty much a step down from being a Reds fan, at least at that time, and uh, they were playing in an old minor league ballpark that had been renovated, but I had justified that I was allowed to have a favorite American League team and a favorite National League team, so this worked out okay, and that was the only team available, so I became a Rangers fan and still like the Rangers, and, uh, but they're not quite the Reds, you know, so that, that really happened, and while living in Dallas or in Fort Worth, the Dallas Mavericks were fairly new, so I've been a Dallas Mavericks fan ever since then, and and never really liked the Cowboys. But moving here, moving here, when, the, when Jacksonville was awarded an NFL team, 
Uh, I jumped on the bandwagon, and I've been a Jaguars fan, so you thought I needed prayer with the Reds. Pray for all of us who are, happen to be Jaguars fans. This, this shows perseverance. So um, a Jaguars fan. Now, some of you, you know, those are pro teams. Some of you don't care anything about professional sports, and you're college fans. I mean, you, you love your, your fandom goes deep into the university or the college of choice, whether you attended there or a family member did, or, or you've just been a fan for years. You buy the clothes that match. You have the logos on your vehicles. You are, uh, I mean, college football is, is a season that you look forward to every year, perhaps, and you kind of understand this. Now, then there are those of you that don't care about any sports, so just bear with me if you would. Here's kind of what I'm thinking. Being a sports fan of a certain team, you are taught, um, made to root for your team, and in the midst of that, there are other teams that you are supposed to, we're Christians, so we don't hate, but you, you dislike them greatly because they are your rival. They're the other team. That's the bad guys. And you don't root for them. And so uh, that's kind of ingrained within you until, and this is where it becomes very difficult, where that athlete, because he played for the other team, was on your I don't like list. And every time they came on TV, you snarled or coughed or you just didn't like it because you're not supposed to like them until free agency came or they entered the transfer protocol and now they're putting on the uniform of your favorite team. It's a real quandary. How you can cheer for that guy who you used to cheer against, but you cheer for him now because he wears the uniform of choice. When he's on that team, he was cocky. But now he's on your team, he's just confident. You know how this works, right? And then you realize you really don't cheer for people as much as you just cheer for laundry and logos. But nevertheless, it's that, that, that deep, seated rivalry now that's sports and ultimately it matters but not it doesn't really matter but when you look at the early church here's what you had you had people that were raised in a family taught to hate certain people i mean that that's that's really what was happening it, it was deep seated whether racism cultural dislike unforgiveness for past crimes whatever it might be there are people on the planet that are not us, and we are supposed to hate them. Not the church people, but the people before they came into the church. That's what makes this so challenging, so amazing, so incredible what God has done and is doing. We spent the last few weeks looking at how God turned Peter around on this and took him to Cornelius, a Gentile believer, and where Peter had no place in his mind or heart to even welcome a Gentile. He's now eating with him in his own home. And now you have this church in Antioch, which is a great image of the church. But it is full of people that are not supposed to be on the same team, much less in the same family. So it really is a moment as you look at this of what God is doing. It's an amazing reality. I, I know our church is, is 99 years old. We're, we're working towards that 100th anniversary. I was just in our church library. Ginger told me there's a file folder there with a bunch of old documents and pictures. So I spent some time looking at pictures of the church from the 50s and the 60s and old church directories. Some of you are in there, but you don't look the same. And... Uh, and neither do I, by the way. So I'm, I'm looking at these, and I'm like, wow, we've been here a long time. A lot of good things have happened. A lot of challenging things have happened. We've had all kinds of chapters in this story at First Baptist. 
And you're here today, you're part of the church, it's a, and we appreciate that. We know God has brought you here for, for his glory. And knowing how, uh, I, I don't think ever intentionally, I've never found anything documented, I don't know, I'm sure someone could correct that, but I've never heard of any intentional division. There's always division, but never intentionally divided or saying certain people can't come and others can in this church. And I'm not foolish enough to, 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 to think that, you know, pre-civil rights era, there weren't some boundaries that were erected within the body. Thankfully, they're not there now. But the church, as we are called together, we have continually come together in corporate worship to read the Word, to study the Word of God, to apply the Word of God, to live out in worship to our God for who He is and, and what He does in our lives, knowing that, that we can, if we're not careful, forget all that He has saved us from and sometimes can even get a little fuzzy on what He has saved us to. And so it's good at times to just kind of reevaluate who we are as a church. And so we look not to some other church to model ourselves after that's current, but we look at what the Word of God gives us, for that's the only model we would really should go to. And what we see here in Acts chapter 12 and 13 is we recognize that while First Baptist Church is not a church plant, we're not a mission church, we've got 99 years of history, that we can't set back on 99 years of history if we'd like to have another 99 years. There is a continual growth that must take place within the body. There is a continual recalibration, so to speak, to make sure we're staying true to the gospel, that we're moving forward and we're faithful in what God has called us to be and who he has called us to reach and who he's, how he's called us to live. You notice that the church in Antioch was a diverse church. Now, diversity is a word that's one of those kind of scary words to use in the culture today because while I sit with other pastors and Christian leaders in our network and we talk about the diversity among our churches, we have an understanding of what that word means. While there are groups outside in the culture that have a different definition of how they define diversity. <clears throat> so I don't know how clear I need to be today, but... But when we're talking about diversity within the church, we're not talking about diverse theological understandings that contradict one another, understanding like, all right, yeah, you can believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Trinity. You can disavow the Trinity. We can't do that. That's, that's not who we are. To be faithful to the doctrine that God has given us, to be faithful to the Word of God is key. So, but we can be diverse in the understanding of God brings people from diverse backgrounds, from diverse uh, cultural understandings from diverse economic status from diverse racial backgrounds and he can make a church that is unified in him so to be a church that is diverse that's all I'm speaking of at that point that we are diverse in the in the top layer levels but we are cemented in unity in Christ it is not a diversity that affirms sin. You can't come with a lifestyle choice that is outside the will of God and outside of Scripture and be accepted and say, that's okay. We're not going to apologize, nor are we going to affirm the sinful lifestyles of those who want to live a certain way. And, and, I, and I'm not talking about just a certain way that you might be thinking of. There are a lot of certain ways that people like to live according to their own understanding of what ought to be. And those understandings live outside the boundaries of Scripture. So with the scripture as our guide, we do want to be a diverse church. We must be a diverse church. And when you look at the diversity that's in the book of Acts or in, the, in, the, in the, the chapter 13 here in the church at Antioch, you see a roll call that reveals this. Here's who's there in Acts 13. Barnabas, a Cyprian Jewish believer. Simeon called Niger. Why would they call Simeon Niger? Because Niger means dark-skinned. Simeon is a black man. 
Simeon has a darker, has more melanin than others, and he's in the room. You have Lucian from Cyrene, a North African. You have Manaean. Manaean is the guy that lives in the million-dollar home while other church members live in the $20,000 home. Manaean is the guy that that can name drop the movers and the shakers and the business leaders and the power people. Manaean is the guy that is a member of four country clubs and golfs with all the rich people in town. That's Manaean. That's not a shot. That's just who he is. He's at an economic level much higher than everybody else, for Manaean was brought up in Herod's court, related to the royal upper class. He is either the foster brother or a relative of Herod Antipas. Then you have Saul, a Jewish believer previously, now an apostle, but previously known as the Christian killer and the church closer. That's Saul. Now that's a group of diverse individuals. But get this. This is not a group of diverse individuals who just happen to be the members of the church. This is no, there's no kids table in this church. These are leaders in the church. The church is not built, this church in Acts is not built on what has become so popular and prevalent in our culture today, which we know is the attractional church. I don't know how much you know about church culture and North American Christianity, but the phrase attractional church, I don't know if that does anything for you, but it, you, you've all been impacted by the attractional church in America. I have, you have. Whether it was an attractional movement from the 80s, uh, from the purpose-driven life or purpose-driven church to the Willow Creek model or the Crystal Cathedral or whatever else was out there, attractional churches, by and large, and this is a, I'm, I'm putting them all in the same category, I'm going to make some people angry, but attractional churches are the kind of churches that when people say, hey, where do you go to church, tell me about it, and they'll say, oh man, it's rocking. The music, it's like a concert. Man, the pastor's really hot. I've never heard that. <laughs> right? Uh, so, thank the Lord. Well, well, one person said it, right? That's my wife right there. Amen. Okay, thank you. That's my wife down there, TV people. All right. Um, but the attractional church tends to be the church that puts on the really good show. That, and, and it's the church that gives away a free car at Easter. I mean, that happens. I'm not making stories up. I mean, I'd like, I may attend that one once. But nevertheless, there's always a gimmick. Because they've always either have to outdo the church down the street or outdo who they, what they were last week. And it's a one-upmanship. It's the, it's the latest, I call it the latest iPhone or the latest Droid phone. I mean, it, it, the latest version comes out. It still makes phone calls like the one you have, but everybody wants the newer one because it's new. I mean, I do. And so the latest church becomes the latest iPhone. It's the attractional model. Now, there's nothing really wrong with all that attractional stuff except when that's all you have. And when all you have is that, then the gospel suffers because you've avoid, you, you, you're basically saying God's not enough. So we have to put on a better show to get our kids and our neighbors and our friends to show up. And then the game or the end game or the win is that people... And just show up. This is bothering you as much as me, isn't it? Does this bother you? Anybody? Yes, I heard an amen. I'll do anything to get an amen. There you go. But it isn't the show that attracts. God is attractional. And the gospel attracts. 
The people who responded to God's gospel call in the book of Acts are not just a Cyprian Jew, not just a Jewish persecutor of the church, not just a guy from North Africa or a black man or an uppity man with connections or any other descriptor as it's been given. These men had those definitions to define who they were and where they're from, and the only reason they're given now is so we sit back and go, wow, only God could put those people in the room together and make a family. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, you put those people in the room and you have chaos, and you have fights, and you have political positioning, and you have arguments, and you have, you know, sometimes just because people are related when you put them in the same room, it's not always peaceful. Anybody have Thanksgiving this week? Anybody? This week is supposed to be pretty good because a lot of people didn't travel, but sometimes it's, it can be a bit challenging. It's just life. These men are not just members of a church. They're brothers. They have a bond deeper than their nationality, a bond deeper than their political preference or their skin tone or their accents or their heart language or their style of dress. These men have a blood relationship through Jesus Christ that put them not only on the same team, but in the same family. The leaders of this church reflected the people of the community. That, that's something to note as well. This is a challenge for us here at Orange Park. It's a challenge for every single church I'm working with in our city and those that I, I'm, I'm pastors that I'm friends with and conversations. If the church gathering in the building looks nothing like the community outside the doors, you might not be a church for the place where you are. You might be a church for commuters from, where they, from other locations. We have to look like and be honest about who we are but we need to be strategic and intentional about looking like the people who are actually there otherwise as i heard one individual say you are you are perfectly positioned and perfectly organized to reach a people group that no longer lives where you live nor looks like you look and may not even exist this church looked like a looked because that's what antioch looked like why is there a Jewish Cyprian there? Why is there a black man there? Why is there this rich guy there? Why is there a poor guy there? Because Antioch looked like that. And God brought this, these redeemed individuals together through the one who is Jesus Christ. Diversity within the body has an attractional dimension to it. And rightly experienced, it never ignores sin, never waters down scripture, and does not avoid biblical truth. The church must be diverse in that aspect. The church must also be a worshiping church. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There is a command in the midst of the worship service, but notice this, the, the, the plan and the strategy, and this is what's going to happen, and the sending, and, and let's get some missionaries out of here, and let's get some work done, was not brought by a committee who planned together for three weeks and then presented it at a business meeting. This was not brought to the church by denominational leadership that said, here's a good leadership plan. It was not brought to the church by any group that said, we have an idea. It was in the midst of worship that the Spirit spoke, and in the midst of worship, the church heard. The sad reality is sometimes the church just gathers to sing a couple of songs before we get to the preaching and we forget to worship. Sometimes the music in a church is so defined by what I like or what I don't like, or that's not my thing, I'm not a fan of that style. Find me anybody that's a fan of any style of music in a church all the time. They don't exist. You know why? 
because the music in the church is not supposed to be designed to tickle the ears of the crowd, but to offer the worship to the king. And I know that's a struggle for all of us because we like what we like. But worship, and I fear this, I don't know if this is a reality in the age of COVID and the fact that the way we're having to do church now or not, but but I saw this previously, and I, I still think this plays into it. Do you remember back in the old days? I mean, this is ancient history, but they used to have these buildings with these giant screens on the wall, and you could buy popcorn and sit in chairs and watch movies. Remember that? It doesn't happen anymore. But back in the old days, I think they called them movie theaters or cinemas before streaming. But back in those days, there was also, if a movie came on at 8, then you knew at 8 o'clock they were going to show 15 minutes of upcoming previews of of, of coming attractions. And so even if you're running a bit late, you know that if the movie starts at 8, you can get there at 8.15 and not miss anything. And I fear that the American church has either turned the music in the local church into a concert with the preaching tagged on at the end if I want to hang out for it, or in other cases, flip it around, the music's little more than the previews of coming attractions, and I'll show up when the preaching starts. That's not a shot at the 30 people that showed up after the music online. It's just a reality. The worshiping church. Here's, worship must not be a service we attend, but a state of the heart in submission to the one, only one worthy of our praise. Not just in song, but absolutely in song. Not just in teaching, but definitely in teaching. Not just in actions, but certainly in our actions. The church that does not worship is a sinning church. And that doesn't mean you have to say, well, I don't really like singing really loud. At what point did I tell you that, that worship is about singing? It's not even really about music. It's about all of this. If your worship experience ends when we turn the camera off and we lock the doors, then we've blown it today. It is through worshiping our Lord that our heart's affection and mind's attention is focused on the things above. We must intentionally put to death our old ways. Paul writes to the Colossians, and he says, you've got to put to death the old ways. You've got to think of new ways. You've got to live a new life. In other words, this is the only time in Scripture it says it's okay to murder. You've got to murder your old ways. That, what it doesn't say is just baptize it and make it sound spiritual. You have to kill the sin of our old life. As the church worships, our hearts open up to God's call. There's no denying this in the corporate gathering. And you've heard it all, and I've heard it all, and you see news stories, and I see news stories. Let me just make this as clear as possible. We come together to worship as God's church, not because we have the right to, but because it's right to. And I think that sometimes the Americanized Christianity that is so prevalent, the the independent Christianity, the individualized Christianity, the I have a right to Christianity eliminates what Scripture tells us that we are not Christians who have a declaration of independence, but we are children of God who have declared our dependence upon Him, abandoning our own rights at times for the sake of the gospel. So when we gather to worship, it's not because we have a right to, it's because it's right to. The church must worship, and this really has nothing to do with personal preference of style of music, 
but it has everything to do with our position as worshipers together before the Lord because you're saying, I just didn't hear God today. It's because you didn't worship. I, I don't know how else to put it, but in the midst of the Antiochian church worshiping, it was very clear when the Holy Spirit spoke and they knew it was him. There was no confusion. And the last thing, we need to be a diverse church. We need to be a worshiping church. We must be a sending church. Look again at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. There is an order here. And just in case you thought sending missionaries to far off lands or supporting these men and women who serve overseas or, or calling out church planters and relocating them to the inner city or to places of service was some kind of new and fancy trending Southern Baptist thing, let me just remind you that this is not new, should not be shocking, should not be new news. When a church is sending out missionaries, it should not be considered as, oh wow, that's an interesting thing. We, I don't know if we've ever done that before. I would go so far as to say that the church that does not send is a sinning church. Because sending is our DNA as believers. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You are a sender. You're sending people elsewhere. You know, I know people, they kind of push back on this, and, and they're thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I like that. I grew up in a small church. We really never had any missionaries move away and go live overseas. I didn't say that was the key. I, it may not be that you need to go live in Kenya. It may not be that you need to go move to, to New York City. It may not mean that. It may mean you just need to be sent out the door of this building into the neighborhood where you live. The church that does nothing but gather and turn inward is a sinning church. You might say, oh, yeah, we've got to take care of ourselves. Not to the exclusion of the great commandment and the great commission. See, that's a false understanding from those that liked the verse, you know, we will, I will send you out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And, and people misread that. And, and, and some people just liked it, like it this way. This is kind of how they say it. Well, you know, since charity begins at home, so does missions begin at home. So when we get Jerusalem done, then we'll go to Judea. And then we'll go to Samaria. And then we'll go to the uttermost parts. Let me just go ahead and help you understand that's not a concentric circle of going, get one done and move to the next, and then move to the next. The Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world is all at once. Because if you're going to wait till Jerusalem is 100% saved, you're going to wait, literally, you're going to wait till Orange Park, the town of, well, let's just use the small town of Orange Park. Every human being within the town limits is a Christian before you go to Duval County? Before you then go to the rest of Florida? Before you go to Kenya? It's not one then leads to the next and then leads, it's all. I had the privilege this past week of joining a Zoom call with some missionaries. I was invited, it was a private call. It was international missionaries, IMB missionaries. There were three families, all of them in their 30s or younger. All of them had little, little knotheads running around on the camera coming in, hey, how are you? And they're running off. I'm like, wow, this, this is energy right here. Two of the families are on the other side of the planet because they did not leave before COVID hit. The third family's on, in America on this side of the planet, and so they're in our time zone. And so the one here on this side of the planet can't get back over there right now until COVID shuts down. They have to get new visas and all that, new permissions. And the ones here are the team leaders for those there. It's a fun world we're in. And I'm just sitting there with my microphone muted because I was given those clear instructions when I joined. I was there just to hear and to pray.
You have these three families, and each of the families had two or three individuals that had joined in that were going to pray specifically for them. It was an update of what's going on and specific prayer needs. And I won't bore you. It's not really not boring, but I won't tell you all the details of that. But I was just listening in, and here's this young family, and here's their sending church in Dallas, and here's this young family, and here's this other church and this other place. And as I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with what I'm hearing, they're living in a place in another part of the world where COVID is hitting greatly and they have been in their apartments, not leaving at all except to run to get food and come back for, since like March. The healthcare system where they live is much lower than it is here, so the danger level is much higher when they get out in public. The prayer requests were, I'll do it broadly enough so that nobody gets in trouble on the secure uh, Zoom call we were in, but um, pray for our children. They love each other, but they need more friends. They're little, and they're playing with each other well, but they miss their friends. Pray for my spouse who's going into the hospital, medical issues. It has nothing to do with COVID, and we hope it doesn't when she comes back, that kind of thing. And then the big prayer request. Pray for us, missionaries saying this, because we're stuck in our home and we didn't come over here to stay in our home. And it's killing us that we can't be in the same room and to hug and to talk with our friends. And our neighbors are all lost. And they need Jesus and that's why we're here. And, it, and it's almost like, wow, that's depressing. And then it's like, but we know, here's what got me. But we know we're right exactly where God wants us. And we wouldn't go anywhere else to, for anything. But just pray that we can get back to the work that God's called us to. And in the meantime, we'll try to do it online. I walked away, I turned off the Zoom call, more encouraged than I could have encouraged them. I got a little insight into that call, and I was overwhelmed and honored to be on that call as these young families are there, and they're telling us what's going on. And it was amazing uh, faith on display. And I was reminded that the church, while worshiping, will always hear God's voice clearly if they are worshiping well. The church will set apart the call. They will lay hands upon them, even if from a distance. They will pray for them, support them, provide for them, and send them. The church is a sending church, and the church that never sends, sends, S-E-N-D-S, is missing God's call. First Baptist Church of Orange Park has had a mission since we were planted 99 years ago. It's probably been restated numerous times, depending on who the pastor was at the time and the circumstances and the culture and all of that. But ultimately, our mission is the very same mission as the church in Antioch. It really is. There's really no copy in some other church down the street that has an attractional model to make it work for us when we have this model that God has given us. This is our mission. First Baptist Church of Orange Park exists to glorify God by surrendering fully to his lordship and joining in his work while living as authentic, joyful believers. You will see that and have seen that phrase on emails and websites. It's going to be everywhere. And I don't know if you can memorize it because I don't know if I can memorize it, but I've got to know it. Because when somebody asks, hey, what's your church all about? What do you guys do? I'll tell you what we do. We do everything we can to glorify God. It's not about us, it's him. We glorify God and we surrender Him to him fully as our Lord. And we know he's already at work, so we just want to join him where he's working.
But in the meantime, we got to live as authentic, joyful believers. We actually enjoy being Christians. I found one picture of the early church. It was taken a black and white photo. The whole church could fit in like 10 of these pews. It's our church. And it's one of those old, you know, 1930s or 40s or whatever. I don't know, not, probably 1930s. The picture's taken. And I looked at it. I showed Ginger Akram. I said, Ginger, you know, it's a, I recognize some of the families, you know. I said, but you know this is a Baptist church, don't you? She goes, why do you say that? I said, there's nobody smiling at all. They were probably told, look, look serious and look holy. I don't know. But you know what? Being a Christian needs to be a joyful experience. I mean, who would want to join our club of miserable people? Lamenting and griping about everything. I mean, you have Facebook for that. So the church doesn't need that. So our mission is to glorify God. Surrendering fully to his lordship and joining in his work while living as authentic, joyful believers. And as we do this, diversity within the body will be clear and it will show up and it will reveal how God, we love God fully and we love all people equally. It'll reveal that we love where we live because God placed us here on purpose. We're not an accidental church. And it'll reveal we love his church because he loves his church. And this is why we have to send our best to serve. I don't know where the sending is going to lead. I love watching these clips, and I know these videos of these missionaries, but you also know, don't you? Some of you already know this, that that young lady that went to Kenya had to go tell her parents, hey, I'm a single woman, I'm moving to Kenya, working on the streets in a, in a children's ministry. Had to tell her grandma that probably, and they had to go, really? I don't know if you knew this, but not every family is real excited. when they're re- A lot of Christians are real excited when people go serve on the mission field. Not everybody's real excited when it's their own kid. But what if we change the way we pray and we change the way we think and they change the way we are? And rather than our kids are designed by God so they can fulfill our dreams, maybe if we just give them over to God so they can fulfill God's call. And what if we do the same thing? 